Over the next few, next few weeks, we're going to explore some of the tough questions that people ask. As a matter of fact, these sermons are geared around questions that I've been asked, and I suspect you've been asked. And so sometimes we think, okay, how do I answer that kind of a question? So we're, that, that's what we're going to take a look at. And one of them that is most often asked is, how is your church different from, and then they fill in the blank. And uh, with so many spiritual options available in the world today, people are curious to know how what we believe is different from all the other religious choices available to them. <clears throat> Whenever Addie comes over to, to our house, uh, she likes to sit on Elsie's lap and, um, and, and while Elsie's playing the piano and, and go through all these songs. We happen to have a songbook that has a lot of the kind of a kid-friendly fun songs in it. I mean, a lot of them are old and a lot of them are new. I mean, it's anything from Ernie's Rubber Ducky song to the theme from Pink Panther and to a whole lot more. Well, one of Andy's favorite songs has become My Dog's Bigger Than Your Dog. Do you remember that song? You know, it'd been years since I had sung that song and, and, and heard that song. And so one day, you know, and when, when a little one, uh, a two-year-old latches onto something, you have to do it over and over and over again. You know what the words of that song are? You know, my dog's bigger than your dog. My dog's bigger than yours. My dog's bigger and he chases mailman. My dog's bigger than yours. Now, those are the original words to the song. What you sing that over for a few times and all of a sudden it, get locks, it locks in your brain and all this week, when I wake up in the morning, that thing's been going through my mind. You know, oh, it just it kind of drives me nuts. And I've been working on the sermon, and I thought, that's it. That, that's what people really dislike about religion. Is that if we're singing the same song too often. It's the same tune. We just got different words. My God's bigger than your God. Or my God's better than your God. And the world looks at that and sometimes takes offense at that and says, if that's the way it is, I want no part of it. I don't even believe in religion. I don't even believe in God. Now, a few weeks ago, I gave you a, a snippet of an interview between Ben Stein and Dr. Richard Dawkins, uh, and I want you to see another part of that interview this morning because it's, well, this is what happens when people say, you know what, I don't want to believe in any of that anymore. I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in religion. So just watch. Religion is a superstition. Boy, I'd kind of like to be a fly on the way that a fly on the wall the day that Richard Dawkins meets God face to face for the first time after that description of him, wouldn't you? Wow. And, and and here's the thing: what Richard Dawkins believes about God is what a lot of people in this world believe about God, and what they believe about religion that it's nothing more than superstition. And part of it's because we've never been able to delineate what we believe or we've been fighting and arguing so much. You see, that, some people don't think it's superstition. They just, they're just not sure what it is, so they would really like to just level the playing field. They want to believe that all gods are equal, that all religions are equal, that nobody's God is bigger than somebody else's God, or that nobody's God is better than somebody else's God, that we're all just different but headed in the same direction. With the re-release of the Star Wars movies in 3D, it won't be long until we're facing once again that common theme, may the force be with you. I love that. I love those, all those movies, but you know, that's kind of how some people just say, oh, there's just a big spiritual force out there. May the force of God be with you or the force of the universe be with you. Or as the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw, an atheist, once said, there's only one religion, though there are a hundred versions of it. And in our pluralist, pluralistic society, 
An ever-increasing number of people find Shaw's interpretation of religion appealing. With all due respect to Mr. Shaw, he is wrong, logically speaking. His thesis cannot logically or rationally be true. It sounds nice. It sounds inclusive. People want to buy into that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just all one big thing. But the truth is it simply can't work when it's explored because every religious group makes truth claims that ultimately somewhere along the line contradict the truth claims of other religions. The law of non-contradiction logically states that when two statements contradict each other, both may be wrong, but both cannot be right. Now granted, not everybody buys into the concept of logic. I read about a business intern in an office. He was working on his word processor. His printer was down to one sheet of paper, so he went to the administrative assistant and says, I need more paper for my printer. And she said, well, just, just, just take some of the copier paper. So he went and got his last sheet of blank paper, laid it on the copier, closed the lid, and printed off 10 sheets of blank copier paper. I'm here to tell you the sheet was not the only thing blank with that intern. <laughs> you see, sometimes logic just doesn't compute with somebody. But logically, you cannot say that uh, because there are truth claims that contradict other truth claims. That said, there is some common ground shared by several of the world's religions. Often statements about basic values or concepts of morality or goodness are similar. In other religions, you will find admonitions to do good to your neighbors or to be faithful to your spouse or not to lie. Truth is truth, folks, no matter who says it. And all truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's God's truth. And I think here's where a part of the problem begins. Because there are some areas of commonality, people just assume, well, everything is common, and that's not true. And then you follow that up with the fact that sometimes Christians act indignantly about these kinds of things or angrily about these kinds of things, and it repels people. You know, sometimes when somebody says, well, I believe this, Christians, you know, respond, well, no, I, you, no, I don't want to believe that you believe that, and push people away. It, I, where did we lose out on the model of Jesus in, in dealing with other people? You know, Jesus dealt with a whole lot of people in his three-year ministry. It wasn't just the Jewish people that he was working with, his own people. He dealt with some of the Gentiles and, and, and the polytheistic, pantheistic, idol-worshiping people that were in the surrounding areas. But I don't ever remember Jesus saying, hey, you there, you, you idol-worshiper, you stay away from me. You and I don't agree on things. You ever, you ever see Jesus do anything like that? Jesus welcomed everybody who would come to listen and learn. Jesus dealt with people. He took them where they were and, and worked with them and, and embraced the fact that he loved all people and wanted all people to come to an understanding of God. He never responded in ways to turn people off, except for the religious leaders who were living a hypocritical existence. Paul did the same thing, folks. When the apostle Paul went to the city of, of, uh, of Athens, he was 
involved in, in this uh, uh, culture of, of polytheism. They were so idolatrous in the city of Athens that when he entered the city, there was an altar to an unknown God. Now, Paul didn't agree with any of that. Paul was there to share the message of Jesus Christ. And when he stood up at the Areopagus, he began with words that were conciliatory, words that were encouraging. Where, where did we miss out on Paul's model for us? Let me paraphrase the words of Paul in Acts chapter 17. He stands up and he addresses the whole crowd. I've noticed that you're a very religious people. You are sincere and so careful about your worship that you've created an altar to an unknown God. I would like to tell you about him. And that's where Paul begins. Well, who wouldn't be willing to listen to somebody like that? He notices that we're sincere. He notices that we're religious. He has encouraged us. What happened that we lost sight of these incredible examples from Jesus and from the Apostle Paul. Such great models are worth following. So if somebody from another religious background tells you that his religion teaches him to be a good neighbor, don't respond by saying, hey, you can't say that. That's what I believe. No. Say something like this. That's great. That's what Jesus taught me too. So tell me what else you believe. I'd love to hear about it. And I'd be happy to share with you what I believe. That builds bridges. Jesus always built bridges. Paul built bridges. You build bridges with people when you can find common ground that brings you together to, to build a relationship so you can have a conversation that counts. But that's not, that's not where the problem comes in. It's not the commonality that's the issue. It's the places where there is no commonality that ruffles the feathers. Take, for instance, this passage from the book of Acts that I want to read to you out of chapter 4. In chapter 3, the day before, Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and, and they find a lame man who's been crippled, uh, for, well, since birth. And, and he's laying there begging, and Peter and John talk to him. They have a conversation. He is healed, and he stands up, and there's rejoicing, and Peter takes the opportunity to preach a sermon, and the religious leaders are incensed that, that this has happened. And so the next day, the next morning, they haul Peter and John into the Sanhedrin council and they put them on trial there and the religious leaders say, by what authority do you say these things and have you done this? And this is how Peter responds in verse 8 of chapter 4. <clears throat> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, and the he here refers to Jesus, not the cripple. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now listen to verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men which by, or by which we must be saved. That is a sticking point. Jesus said much the same thing on the night before the cross. He said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's where the rub comes in as we deal with other religions of the world. It is a claim that bothers so many, but it leads us to the Achilles heel of the claim that all religions are the same or all paths lead to the same destination. We are back to the principle of non-contradiction. All can be wrong, but all cannot be right. 
Take, for instance, the whole idea of God. In other religions, there is no God, only a path of enlightenment to reach nirvana, which is total nothingness, the elimination of all desire. In others, there is also no personal God, for Brahma is an impersonal, all-pervading force of the universe. God and the universe are identical. They are just all one. It's very impersonal. Now, it is illogical, folks, to conclude that that picture of God and our picture of God, where there is a personal relationship with him, that he loves us and knows us individually, you cannot bring those two together and make them work. He, he's either personal or he's impersonal. You can't have it both ways. Here's a, here's a passage from the book of Hebrews that's powerful. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That concept, he is the exact representation. It's, this is the fundamental core value that we believe, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's what that means. It's not just that he's a representative. He is God in the flesh. This is our core. We believe in the deity, the substitutionary death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he's not only a messenger from God, but he is God himself incarnate. Whether it is Buddha or Mohammed, many world religions have key prophets. But no other world religion claims that their prophet is actually God in the flesh. As a matter of fact, other worlds, world religions deny that as even a possibility. These are not inconsequential differences, folks. Either Jesus is or he isn't God in the flesh. Not everybody can be right on this one. Everybody may be wrong on this one, but not everybody can be right. And then consider the basis of salvation in almost every other world religion. Salvation is accomplished by doing enough good things in your life that you appease God somehow and hope that you advance to whatever life there is afterwards, if indeed there is any life afterwards. Christianity is 180 degrees turned from that. In Christianity, it is not what we do, it is what God has done for us. It is not merit, it is grace. You have two opposite ways. We've got to appease God. The other one is that God has made possible. It's not about what we do, it's what, a, it's what has been done for us. Those two are as opposite extremes. You cannot make them work together. So how would you answer the question if somebody came up to you now and said, so how is your church different from, and then they fill in the blank. What would you say? Would you just kind of fumble around with it? Well, maybe this. I'm just going to give you a capsulized answer. My faith is not a ritual, but a relationship with a relational God. God came to be one of us in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us and graciously gives us eternal life through faith in his sacrifice we merit nothing. Good deeds are not for, for salvation, but because we are saved in Christ, we live good lives. The bottom line is this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I serve a living Lord and Savior. That is how we're different. 
Now, there's another way this question can be asked that's not maybe quite so, so deep. Sometimes people want to know, well, why, sh why should I go to Sherwood Oaks as opposed to some other church? When I was a kid, we used to say, how's your church different than my church? You talk about traditions and the way you sang or the way you took communion or some of these kinds of things. Nobody was questioning about whether you believe the Bible or whether you questioned Jesus Christ. People are wanting to know, well, what's the difference between Sherwood Oaks and the church where I go? Are all these other churches, why should I come here? How would you answer that this morning? If somebody said, why should I come to Sherwood Oaks? I mean, I'm going to get lost there. Why should I come with you? What would you say? Would you say, oh, I, I don't know. You know, when I went, I just turned in the yellow pages, pages, closed my eyes, and stuck my finger down. When I opened up my eyes, it was on Sherwood Oaks, and so I went. We, we've actually had a couple people who did that, by the way, that, that, that came that way, but thankfully they stayed after they got here that way. But that doesn't really help anybody else out. What should we be doing as a church that causes someone to say, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of? Well, let me answer that, first of all, by telling you why I'm here. 31 years ago, Elsie and I came here to start our ministry with the 80 people in this congregation. We found something special in the lives of the folks who were here. Their attitudes reflected an intense desire to be who God wanted them to be. They had come through a really tough time. And, and, and the, this group of people was determined they weren't going to give up. They weren't going to stop. They weren't going to let the doors of the building close. They wanted to become who God wanted them to become. And through the years, that spirit has dominated the thinking of this congregation. I love that indomitable spirit that those folks had. That, that's what we found when we came here. Now, some of you are thinking, I, I'm not sure about this church stuff you know, I was hurt by people in the church once in my life. Well, take a number and get in line, will you? Who hasn't been hurt by somebody in the church? Man, I've been hurt by people in the church in the past, but that's the exception, not the rule, folks. That's not the real church. You know, you can dwell on the disappointments and the frustrations if you like, but that's not who God's kingdom is really is. This congregation has willingly changed and adapted through the years. That's not been easy, but they've always seen this goal as being who we need to be to help others find Jesus Christ. This has never been a club for the goody people, but a clinic for the hurting people. And while I look back over the years with the fondness of memories, it's never been about what was. It's always about what is and what needs to be. If this church had stayed the same as it was when we came in 1981, you wouldn't be here. And I am so grateful you are here. I am so grateful that God had visionary people here and that God has brought visionary people through the years to this congregation whose love for God and whose love for others is greater than their own comfort zones. This church has continually challenged itself to set the bar ever higher. And you know what? We're not there yet. We have not arrived. We cannot stop with where we are. We must always be moving forward. Okay? Let me tell you why I love this place. I love this place because of the steadfast and humble leadership from our elders. Uh, our elders are, are great men that, that I uh, admire and respect and love to whom I would trust my family's life. 
you need to be grateful to be in a congregation where elders are of that caliber. I, I love this congregation because it, it's not a place where people bicker and backbite. Oh, sure, we have a few sore heads here and there that, that get upset about something. We all get things, you know, bent out of shape every once in a while. But this is not a place where I hear all this going on. Yip, 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 yip. This is not a church like that. There is a positive attitude among the people. This is a congregation who dreams big dreams. I love it for that reason. I love this congregation who welcomes any and everyone who walks through those doors. And if you cannot welcome somebody who walks through those doors, regardless of who they've been or where they are or where they're going in life, then you need to change that because that's not a reflection of Jesus. Anybody that walks through those doors is welcome here. I love this congregation who looks for new ways to serve that we haven't tried yet. I love this congregation who's filled with people from all around the world. I love this international family who gives this place such a richness and depth. When somebody comes from halfway around this globe and walks through those doors and says, I want to worship with you here, that is thrilling to me. I love that the world is right out our back door and right inside these walls. And I love it when folks from around the world are a part of this family. I love this congregation who's devoted to the Lord and the message he entrusted to us in his word that we believe and we stand on his word. I, I love that about this congregation. Now, all that said, we are not a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, if you're looking for a perfect place, I'd just soon you go ahead and leave now because we're going to hurt you. We're going to let you down. We're going to disappoint you because there aren't any perfect people here. But then again, if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll be looking all your life. And it's going to be a futile effort because no nation, no organization, no family, no individual in this world is perfect. But if you're looking for folks who genuinely love the Lord and who want to celebrate their joy in worship and who want to express their love in service, then will you give us a chance? Because we'd love to have you here. Perhaps this summary on the uh, church website says it best. Let me just read this for you quickly. But you can find it on the website. Sherwood Oaks is a church that wants nothing more than to help you learn to love Jesus and love your world better. We believe that every life is a part of the bigger story, and that story includes the freedom to say yes to love through a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and a commitment to reveal that love to your community and world. At Sherwood Oaks, we want to encourage you in your walk with Christ and help you live out his greatest commandment in your own life, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the heartbeat of our calling and the mission of our lives. Join us on this journey as we learn to say yes to love. You want to figure out how we're different? Just read that a few times, and hopefully that'll give you a taste. I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but today is actually Abraham Lincoln's birthday, February the 12th. From a historical perspective, we don't know that Lincoln ever was an official member of any church. But Lincoln did say this about church one time. He said, when any church will inscribe over its altar as its sole qualification for membership, the Savior's condensed statement of the substance of both law and gospel Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and thy neighbor as thyself. That church will I join with all my heart and all my soul, end quote. That's the kind of church I want us to be, to always be coming. We're not there yet. We'll never quite get there. 
but we can always be setting the bar higher and higher and higher to help people find Jesus Christ through it all. Now, becoming that kind of church begins with this foundation. On your way in this morning, you should have received a, a card, a commitment card for prayer. And we've got a lot of incredible things that we're going to try to do in this, our 50th year. But none of it matters. None of it matters, folks, if we don't start here. If it's not undergirded with the foundation of prayer, it, it isn't going to count. So if you don't have one of these, you know, Alan's coming up the aisle right now. He'll give you one of these, or you can pick one up out in the foyer and fill it out. I'm asking you to circle one of those and say, I promise I will pray this much every day through the rest of this year for this congregation to become who God needs her to be. If this doesn't happen, none of the rest of it's going to matter. Because the foundation of prayer, asking God to do this, is incredibly important. So sign your name, circle how much you're going to pray, sign your name, drop the bottom half in the baskets or the glass boxes that are outside, keep the top half where you can see it on the back or some of the goals to pray for, and then from here on out, keep praying with all your heart that God will do something great in this congregation. Now why does all this matter? Why, why have I, what's the big deal if, you know, do I have to decide all this? I mean, do I have to make a conclusion? Well, no, you don't have to, but you should. You should want to know what is truth and weed through what makes it different. You know, the reason I preach things like this is because life is short. You watched the news last night or this morning at all? Listen to it. You know, everybody's mourning over the fact that Whitney Houston at 48 48 died in her hotel room this morning. From the world's perspective and standpoint, she had everything that would define success. A beautiful voice, all these music awards, the claim and the accolades of society. At 48, she's dead. Life is short, folks. Do you know where Whitney Houston started singing? Church. I hope that faith followed with her all through the years. I know she had some ups and downs and some problems and some issues. Oh, but I hope that that faith was as strong at 48 as it was when she was singing as a young girl because I'm here to tell you, life is short. Life is short if you, only, if you live to 88. That life in this world is just, that's why you have to figure out who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You say, well, Jesus is a good guy, but he's just not for me. Can't say that. You can't say he's just a good guy. That's illogical. Because if he is not Lord and Savior, if he is not God in the flesh, then he's not a good guy. Because he claimed to be that and promised that he could give us life everlasting. And if he's not that, then he's no good guy because he's a liar and a deceiver and he's despicable. So don't give me that line. Well, he's a good guy. He's just not who he claimed to be. Uh-uh. You can say, I don't want him, okay. You can say, I don't believe it, okay. But don't give me that line about he's a good guy, he's just not any different. That's the, that's the crux of the matter. He's different. He alone stands there, and you have to choose. So what's your choice this morning? Now is the time. Don't let it slip away. While we stand and while we sing, you come.